before we take a look today at the final three verses, I want to take a few minutes and highlight two big picture themes from this book of Philippians. And I want to offer uh, kind of a final thought to answer some of the questions that we've also received from many of you over the course of this series. But these are the two big picture themes. I'm telling you what, if you get these, if, you, if, you, if you'll let these speak into your heart, and you will, of all the things we've talked about, if you'll get these two, number one, I believe you'll be happier every single day of your life. You'll have a better life. You'll feel better. You'll get your goals accomplished better. You'll be more full of joy. And number two, I think we as a church will be able to go forward to the place that God wants us to go. If, if we can get these two big picture themes. The first one that Paul hits on again and again is something that we talked about way back in week one of this series, and it has to do with relationship. And it is that in any relationship, our koinonia is the Greek word that is used in the New Testament a lot. Our partnership, our koinonia flows in two directions. It flows this way. We can think of it as this way. It flows as kind of face-to-face face face when you and I are in fellowship together. It flows this way, but it also flows this way, side-by-side side with each other, right? Where we turn our gaze, at some point we turn our gaze from each other, as much as we love looking at each other. At some point we turn our gaze and we come alongside each other. We can think of it like this. So the, this word koinonia, it's this beautiful word in, used in the New Testament, and it's usually translated fellowship, like in Acts. It's usually translated fellowship. It's that it's it's what we're gonna uh, our prime timers gonna be doing right after service, having having lunch in there for their Christmas lunch in there. It's fellowship. It's but it's also translated partnership when you get to the book of Philippians, and and where it's translated fellowship is where it seems to have that face to face emphasis, coming into close intimate honest, authentic relationship. We talk a lot about that here at Generations Church. It's very important. We're moving closer and closer to to that ideal. It's the intimate moments that you share. It's even the intimate moments you share with a loved one or a friend. When you guys are, you know, when you're looking at each other, you're looking at each other's eyes, you're talking, and you're you're sharing this moment, and the rest of the world just kind of disappears. Everybody have those wonderful moments? The world dissolves away. But in Philippians, Paul uses this word, the same word, and he enriches and deepens its implications to refer now to coming alongside of each other and turning our faces toward a shared cause. We've been talking about this for weeks, so this isn't news from, for those of you who've been in the series. So we come together like this in relationship. We come together, but then we put that relationship into action. You see? We put it into action, and you know what? That even strengthens the bonds of our relationship. It kind of gives our fellowship a deeper purpose, right? It, we, have, we, we turn our gaze outward in shared mission, and we say, let's join forces now. Let's act in unity in one direction as co-laborers in shared mission. It's very important. In, every, in any relationship, how many of you are married to somebody who's, who's kind of different from you? Yeah? They have strengths you don't have. They, you know, maybe you have strengths that they're, you know, not, they don't really have. Well, it's the same way. And then when we partner with each other, we get to use those shared strengths, right? We get to use those things. And the truth is both aspects of, of relationship are important. For any healthy relationship, both aspects, that sort of this way and this way aspect. Often in Christian circles, when we talk about koinonia, we think of the face-to-face aspect of koinonia. 
relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in our fellowship, and we value that. It has great value. We value that face-to-face fellowship. We also value that face-to-face fellowship with God, don't we? Right? How many of you love that intimate moment, that intimate time of worship that you have with God? It's that intimate passion, passionate expression of relationship. Some of you, some of you just jump right in there when you're singing to him, right? And that's important because those are the times we sort of hit the pause button on the world, isn't it? We hit the pause button on life and we say, right now, I'm just going to sing love songs to the one that I love. And it's just you and Yahweh face to face. And it's beautiful and that's beautiful, and it's part of a healthy relationship. But as anyone understands, who's lived a few years past puberty on this planet, any romantic, loving relationship that stays face-to-face can eventually, if it never moves past that point, it eventually becomes ultimately egocentric, doesn't it? It eventually becomes a, f- a form of narcissistic, Right? Because we're just lost in each other's face and we're just gazing in each other's face for hours and hours on end. And at some point, it can it just eat itself to death like a dying star. Because it's just all insular, it's inward. And at some point in the relationship, one of you starts to go, hmm, you know, I'm liking your face and all. And this eight-hour conversation we're having is great. But I feel like I would fall even more in love with you if we went outside and did something together. <laughs> right? At some point, the relationship, someone's got to speak up to be healthy. That's the natural step. To be healthy and complete, it has to become aware of the world around it. To care about the world around it, right? Or you just remain so insular and inwardly focused that the rest of the world disappears. The same thing happens in our relationship with God. So it's great that you have this loving relationship with God. That's wonderful. And you love being alone with him. And you just want to snuggle up with him and sing songs about sloppy wet kisses, you know, or unforeseen kisses if you go that way, you know, or whatever it is. And, you know, that's awesome. We just want to, we just want to be there all day and say, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus all day long. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. But if it stands alone, it's actually stuck in an infantile stage when you think about it. It's in an infantile stage because it's sort of narcissistic. Now, you would think, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not narcissistic. I'm God-centered. I'm being God-centered. And God says, yeah, well, if you love me, partner with me and move forward to serve the other people that I love. That's what God wants to do. God says, I love this. Now I'd like you to partner with me. Let's move forward in relationship and serve the other people that I love. That is relationship. That's koinonia, and it's healthy, and it's flowing in all directions. It makes it really good. Now, let me say this. It's kind of a caveat to that. Um, All relationships go through stages, right? And if someone you know or you see is in in an infantile stage of their relationship, whether with another person or with God, don't blame them for it, okay? If it's a new, fresh relationship. If it's a new, fresh relationship, that's a beautiful stage, right? That's a wonderful stage. That's, it's a lot of fun. There's, there's, this, uh, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of, you know, talking and looking and gazing and kissing going on in that stage. That's a fun stage, right? So don't blame them for it if it's a fresh relationship. Often for new Christians, they need more time of that. They'll need more time of just being there with their Heavenly Father, letting Him fill them up celebrating that relationship. It's a beautiful stage. It's an infantile stage, but it's, it's an appropriate stage if you are, say, an infant. 
right? We don't blame our infants for, for being a little egocentric, do we? Nobody blames their, their infant for crying all night and not realizing that other people have needs too, right? That's, it's part of the stage, you know, that stage where all they know is their incredible need of you, right? That's, it's, it's a beautiful stage. We accept it. So my call to all of us is to maturity. My call to us is growth. It's what we want. To say, yes, I am born as a spiritual infant, but staying in this infantile stage in my relationship with God is not my goal. That's not my goal. It's to grow and mature and see worship as more and more defined by partnership with my fellow believers, and with God, partnership, in order to touch the world outside these doors. Amen? Amen. Okay, that's, that's one thing. The second big picture theme that runs through Philippians that we've been talking a lot about is this concept, this mind-blowing concept of joy in suffering. This may be one of the, 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 the hardest, most, most misunderstood concepts in the, in the Christian world is this concept of suffering. And, and what's going on there? What, what is its place? Does it even have a place? We said at the beginning of the series, one of the, the goals I, I set out in the beginning of the series was we want to get into Paul's mind. We want to say, Paul, how do you achieve that sense of rejoicing and celebration when you're in the middle of prison? when you've been beaten, when you're in the middle of your own suffering. Because if you could discover this, I am convinced your whole world would change. If we could discover this key, your world would change. You would live happier. You would be more full of joy. Your every single day would be full of purpose. Does anybody, like, does that sound good to anybody? Anybody want to be happy, right? I mean, that is one of, when you ask people, what is one of the ultimate goals in life? It's to be happy. Here is a key to this, this even a deeper uh, form of joy. Paul faces injustice. He faces beatings, rejections, and his immediate response every time to whatever circumstance life throws his way, his immediate response is, wow, here's an opportunity. There's an opportunity in here just waiting to be discovered. Opportunity. There's an Opportunity. And we've been looking for clues in what Paul says. He says a lot of good things. But you know what? There's also some good, sound truth to be found in what Paul doesn't say about suffering. And I want to clear that up because I think some of us, some, especially in the religious, real super hyper-religious Christian world, we read these words, we see suffering, and we pull out all kinds of things that the Bible doesn't say. So we want to clear up. I want to look at two common misconceptions that I think we can clear up by noticing what Paul doesn't say. Number one, Paul does not say that we should seek out suffering as a necessity. This is important. Striving for the cause of the gospel, no matter what, is the necessity. But he never says we should seek out suffering as a necessity. Suffering is, is one more opportunity it's an opportunity, but he never says that suffering is a required step to like achieve salvation or something like that. Now, he does say to expect it. Jesus even said that. Expect it. It's going to happen. That's a given because you, you live on the planet, right? If you're still alive, expect it. But it's not something that as Christians we're to go out and seek or inflict on ourselves. See, that's what religion does. This is why religion is a huge exercise in missing the point, always. <laughs> 
Religion says, oh, we need to go out and seek suffering. We need to inflict it on ourselves. Even. I'm not suffering quiet enough. I need to give myself some more suffering, right? Religion says Paul suffered. Christ suffered. So to earn your place in heaven, you need to beat yourself with a whip and wear a hair shirt, right? And take a vow of poverty. That's what we need to do. And some people talk about suffering for Jesus as if you're doing God a favor, or that he's even the cause of it, or something like that. See, that's religion. It's not truth. It's not the gospel. In fact, I think it's demonic, because it's anti-Christ. It's anti-what he said he came to the earth to do, right? So suffering is not something that we need to go find and cause on itself, right? Jesus said, hey, tomorrow's going to have problems of its own. Don't go looking for problems, it's, it's living in a fallen world that causes suffering. God doesn't cause suffering. Living in a fallen world, you, the fact that you live, you woke up today on, a, on the planet Earth, that's what causes suffering. What God does is offer hope and joy in the midst of the suffering. And he offers hope for eventual deliverance from that, right? So he's the, he's the source of hope and deliverance. He's not the source of the suffering. The source of the suffering is the place you're living right now. Amen? Paul never says that suffering itself is good for us. That's an interesting thing. He never says that the suffering is what's good for us, even though, even though in the midst of the suffering, if we had to be honest, in the midst of the suffering, that's when we often find ourselves more open to hear from God. Sometimes, you ever notice when you are in the midst of your crisis, that is when we are at our most humble, we're at our most receptive. Suddenly, we're not kings of the world anymore, Right? We realize who it is, who is our source in those moments. So sometimes we are more receptive. Um, some, suffering has a way sometimes of cutting through the distractions of life, right? We can get really distracted. And when things are going great and we've got plenty of money and there's no problems and our health is perfect, boy, we get totally distracted. Who needs God, right? We're just walking around. Everything's fine. I'm doing good, right? But suffering does have a way of cutting through those distractions, Nowhere in Scripture, though, does Scripture say that we should seek out suffering as a spiritual cure. Never seek out suffering as a spiritual cure. It's not suffering that produces joy. It's focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and our gratefulness that produces the joy. And you can have that whether you're suffering or not. How many of you would rather have the joy without the suffering? Sure, yeah, it's, that's not a trick question, right? We'd rather have the joy. We can have that right? You can have the joy whether you are going through a time of suffering or not. That is the goal. That's the goal. The, the second thing, Paul, here's something else Paul doesn't say that we can learn from. Paul never says that a mature Christian response to suffering should include discerning the source. Now, this is an interesting thing to me. I'm, I read through this whole letter, and I could not find where he takes time to try to discern the source of his suffering. The source of Paul's suffering almost seems to be irrelevant to him. The opportunity to show the gospel is all that matters to Paul. The opportunity in this moment, the opportunity to show the gospel. When Paul talks about suffering, he always speaks from this very unique posture. And I think we've used this phrase, but I want to I highlight it. It's this posture of suffering forward. I want to talk about this for a second. Yeah, I'm gonna, it's not really a new doctrine or something like that we're, we're, we're pulling out here. It's more of a posture, a posture of suffering forward. I want to introduce this concept because I think there's a lot of debate, a lot of misinformation, confusion about this concept of suffering. So, so let me go into what I mean by this, what we'll, this concept. 
What we mean by suffering forward is suffering is always an opportunity to move forward. Your suffering, my suffering is always an opportunity to move forward, to say, okay, what can happen now? What could God do now? How can this be turned into an opportunity? How, best question of all, how can Christ be glorified in this? How can Christ be glorified in this? Paul never suffers backward. Now, what I mean by that is that when we suffer, very often our temptation is to first say, where did this come from? Why did this happen? Suffering backward. So Paul gets this attitude. I think he gets it from Jesus. In John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples. You remember the story where they saw a blind man? They go up to, they, they see this blind man. What do the disciples do? The first thing they want to do is suffer backwards. What's the question they ask? Why did this happen to this man? Who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Who's, who's to blame for this, right? And Jesus is like, oh, please shut your mouth. Why are you even going there? Jesus doesn't even really answer the question metaphysically. He says, nobody sinned. This is an opportunity for God's glory. That's the words of Jesus. This is an opportunity for God's glory. So when you see suffering, when you see it, Suffer forward. Think, what can be done here to reveal God's glory? Many of us are like the disciples. When we suffer, we see suffering, or we see it on ourselves or someone else. Our first reaction is to want to kind of do an autopsy on the situation. We want to do an autopsy. You know what I mean? We all want to act like spiritual coroners instead of, instead of spiritual surgeons. Right? Now, I, I love all those autopsy shows and the coroner shows, CSI, that's awesome. I mean, I, I remember as a kid even watching Quincy. All that stuff's great, right? That, that really goes back, right? Yeah, doing autopsy, that's, that's, that's neat stuff. Mel can't handle it. I have to watch those all by myself, right? But when it comes to our spiritual life, our, our spiritual walk, Jesus and Paul never waste the opportunity by suffering backwards, they never waste the opportunity. They never waste the energy suffering backwards. The human tendency when you're the one suffering, especially in religious circles, is to ask the question, why? Why? Why did this happen? That's what we want to ask. It's just natural. It's like, it, must come, it must be genetic. It must be DNA. It comes out of us. Why? Now, most commonly, there are four general uh, sources of suffering that we want to blame everything on. Suffering comes, first thing we do is ask why. Who's to blame? Ourselves, others, God, or the devil? And we jump, that's the first thing we want to do. Well, we got, we got to figure out why. We just, that, that's like, for some reason, that's really important to us. First thing a lot of us do is we blame ourselves. We believe, well, I, I brought this on myself. What have I done to deserve, deserve this? How, how have I messed up? I must have done this. I must not have prayed hard enough. I must be out of the will of God. Something, it must be mine. It must be, you know, do you notice Paul never does this? Never. He never does this. He doesn't backtrack. He does, you know, when he, when he gets shipwrecked, he can go, oh, I, should, I probably shouldn't have got on that ship. I must have missed the Holy Spirit. I should, I should have got on a different boat, right? He doesn't get thrown in jail and be like, oh, I shouldn't have said that thing. That was offensive. I should have used a different word. <laughs> I, I was mean to the Romans. I shouldn't have done that. So let's learn from what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't blame himself, does he? Others, we blame others. Someone's brought this on me. Someone's got to pay, right? There's got to be someone to blame in a situation. Somebody, right? 
Paul never does this. He doesn't, he doesn't get, uh, you know, attacked by the Romans and go, oh, those filthy Romans, they're so unfair to me. I keep preaching to them and they just won't take it, right? They won't listen to me. And now they've thrown me in jail again. He doesn't blame himself and he doesn't blame others for his suffering. Or worse, we blame God. How could you do this to me, God? I thought I was special. I mean, I know your word says everybody's suffering all over the world, but I thought I was different, right? Some exception somewhere to the rule here. I thought I was special. We get to blame in God. And you know what? It leads to nothing but bitterness. Never once do we see Paul blame God. Don't blame God for your suffering. And to be honest, Paul doesn't even really give the devil too much credit for his sufferings. In Philippians, he, he rarely brings him up. Instead, what does he say? He says, I don't really care where it comes from. That thought never seems to cross his mind. Instead, he suffers forward, not backward. Forward. How can God be praised now? He's sitting in jail. What does he say? Oh, I rejoice because the word of the Lord is going forth. I'm even getting to minister to these jailers, right? These soldiers, these Praetorian guards sitting next to me. Man, I, I keep telling them, what do you think about this line, huh? What, let, me, let me read this to you until you, you guys tell me what you think, right? He's just preaching to them every day, right? He doesn't, he doesn't worry about the source. He's always in eager expectation for God to somehow be glorified. I want to bring back a scripture we read way back in chapter 1, verse 20. It's so good. We have to look at it again. He says, I eagerly expect and hope for Christ to be exalted in this. If you remember way back that phrase, I eagerly expect, it's a posture phrase. It it, it literally means standing on tiptoes, head stretched forward. Head stretched forward, standing on tiptoes. Is this, is this going forward or backward? It's forward, man. It's, it's, like a, it's like a little kid on Christmas morning on tiptoes, straining their face around the corner to see what's under the tree, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see a couple of little faces doing that this coming Christmas morning, right? Leaning forward in hope, not self-pity. Not leaning back in self-pity, leaning forward in hope. That's the posture Paul takes. See, what I'm talking about is a posture. It's a posture of suffering forward. You know, not this sort of, woe is me, I'm suffering for Jesus thing. This posture of what is God going to do next? I cannot wait. It's a whole different mindset. It's a whole different mindset. Suffering is just another opportunity to advance the message forward. Not asking, why me? But what can I do with this now? How can I leverage this to advance the kingdom, to proclaim the gospel? Let me tell you, this frees your mind up. Because you can make yourself crazy trying to think why this happened to me. Right? It will drive you nuts. And it's a never-ending loop. Guess what? You don't have to ask the question. You don't have to ask it. It frees you up from the weight of suffering backwards. It makes for such a healthy psyche that we see in Paul. Your whole life, I'm telling you, your whole life will change if you let this concept be a part of who you are. And this is how we engage in spiritual warfare. When we talk about spiritual warfare in here, it's how you engage in a healthy way. See, you have authority. God has, has given you authority through the prayer of faith. You have the, God's given you this prayer of faith. You have authority to come against the works of the devil. 
But spiritual warfare is what we do every day in our lives. That's an everyday thing. Every day. The purpose of spiritual warfare, I really understand. Uh, This kind of jumped off off the page to me. The purpose of spiritual warfare isn't so you can be free of hardship. That's where some people, I think, get it wrong. And then we're frustrated because they think their prayers aren't being answered. Their prayers aren't working because they're still experiencing hardship. Well, duh, you live on earth, right? Yes, you're going to experience hardship. It doesn't mean your prayers aren't being answered. In fact, if you are praying and you are using that authority of faith and and what, what it's for, more likely the fact that you are still here fighting the fight means your prayers are working. That means your prayers are working. You are still in the fight, right? Moving forward, moving forward. So for Paul, spiritual warfare is how you live your life every day as an overcomer, right? As an overcomer. That word implies there's something to overcome, right? So we have to overcome every day. It's not being trouble-free. Let's just get that out of our head. It's not being trouble-free. It's rather being able to celebrate the goodness of the gospel, carrying that good news to other people, even in the midst of your battle. In the midst of your battle. Even the spiritual armor of God that we read about in Ephesians 6. We don't have time to go into it. But if you read, read the whole passage, it says the armor of God is given to us so we can stand strong against the devil's schemes and advance the gospel forward. Right? You've been given that armor. So you can do that. You can stand strong. For Paul, the miracle of the gospel is not so is not that you can someday experience joy after you've finally been delivered from your suffering. That wouldn't be much of a miracle if that's all the gospel promised you. That someday you'll experience joy when you're delivered from your suffering. Well, yeah, obviously. The miracle of the gospel is that you can experience relentless joy today, right now, even while walking through your battle. That's the miracle. You get it? That's the miracle of the gospel. You can experience it today. All right, all right. Let's go. That was a big preamble. Let's get into the text here. We just got a few more minutes. In verse 21, if you're in chapter, we're in Philippians chapter 4, we just got three little verses here to look at, and I think there's so much wonderful things here. I just want to bring it out. In verse 21, he says, greet all God's people. Some of your translations will say the saints or something like that. Don't get hung up on like saints or something like that. The word for saints is just the set-apart ones, the holy ones that are set apart for a special special purpose. That's you. That's you and me, okay? We're we're the saints of the Lord. And greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings. And then look at what he says. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. There's something brewing here. Remember, in the beginning, he talks about being in chains, right? He's with this Praetorian guard. They got, he's, they're chained to him. And Paul just says, hey, one more opportunity to evangelize Romans. Love it. And this guard would have been considered part of Caesar's extended household. The household here, this word, it, it wasn't just blood relatives, but it also includes all those who function as extensions of Caesar's government. Right, So the guards there, the civil servants, the slaves, the extended family, the soldiers, many of these guys are secretly becoming part of the family of God. 
This is exciting stuff. And Paul closes his letter down by letting these Philippians know, we're not alone. It's happening right here, right? What a great way to end the letter. And all his suffering is an opportunity to advance the gospel. He's suffering forward, right? Uh, and, and so here at the end, he says, I bring you greetings from your brothers, including the ones who work for Caesar, including maybe these Roman guards here I've been, you know, hanging out with, who are now brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Including the ones they've been talking to. They've gone home and got their families saved right? That's what's happening here. All the people who are actually working for Rome, but they are now Christians. They are now your brothers and sisters. He's encouraging the church in Philippi. You got brothers and sisters right here working on the inside of power, right? The walls are breaking down. Hallelujah. What a powerful, beautiful way that Paul brings encouragement and hope to the Christians of Philippi. Because these Christians, you got to imagine, they might be thinking, well, yeah, we're Christians way over here, you know, a thousand miles away. But there's no way that city of Rome is ever going to be a center of Christianity. <laughs> if they could see it now, right? Paul is saying, take heart, my friends, take heart. We got eyes on the inside. Amen? So be ready. See, God's staging an invasion of the empire all around us. He's going to overthrow it, not with a sword, but with the gospel. And he's transforming it from the inside out. This is really good for us today. God is staging an invasion. There's a revolution going on in the empire. And it's not going to be overthrown with the sword. It's going to be overthrown with the gospel from the inside out. It's, it's, it's who we tell. It's, it's when we join together in koinonia, face to face and side by side. That is how the revolution happens, right? All my best friends today, ladies and gentlemen, everybody here, let, me sit, let, let us hear Paul's words very Clearly, this especially becomes poignant as we move from this season of Advent, that season of waiting, and we approach the celebration of his coming. Let's hear Paul's words. God is staging an invasion of the kingdoms of this world. There's an invasion of the kingdoms. There is a Savior coming. There is a revolution of love brewing and we're a part of it. And not even the household of Caesar is safe from his love. Not even there. His love leaks into the, the darkest halls of power. The parts of the world that you can't imagine right now. You see on the news, you're like, well, God can't ever be there. Experience, they are experiencing the gospel today in ways that we can't even imagine. They are on God's radar there is no corner of this earth that is not on God's radar, and there is nowhere that is out of reach for his arm. Amen? Amen. That's the story of hope you and I are a part of. In verse 23, he finishes it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul ends this beautiful letter using a word, that he started the letter with the same way. The first words he wrote 14 weeks ago, if you remember, to all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, grace and peace to you. Grace is how Paul begins the conversation, and grace is how he finishes it. Grace is the thing that ultimately puts the Jesus story in a whole different category than any religion out there. Because of grace, you don't need to sacrifice a bull. Because of grace, you don't need to beg the gods. 
You don't have to strike yourself with a whip. You don't have to dip seven times in the holy river to achieve spiritual nirvana. Because of grace, you don't even have to satisfy some particular degree of suffering to prove yourself worthy of salvation. Because salvation is given to you as a gift. 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 God has taken care of everything. He did it 2,000 years ago. Amen? See, see, when grace gets a hold of you, your life is never the same. Nothing is the same. That has been, that's been my hope and my longing since the beginning of this. Not that you and I would spend some time doing some scholastic survey of an ancient book of the Bible. My hope and my prayer has been that you would all be seized by a whole new way of looking at things. A whole new way of living. That's what's possible here. Not the old way. Not the way of condemnation. That's the old way. Right? Not that never-ending loop of anxiety and stress or, or the incessant reminders that you're not good enough. That's the old way. Those reminders that you'll never measure up because you're not working hard enough or you're too young or you're too old or you're too stupid or too weak or whatever it is. That's the old way. Old way. We've been there, done that. It's time to try a new path. And that path is the path of grace. It's time for a new mindset, a new phronesis. That Christ pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. That's grace. Grace is gift. And, get, and gift is what God does. He, that's what he does. Giving is what comes natural to God. Grace is the whisper in your ear in the most hopeless of moments. It is going to be okay. That's the whisper of grace. Grace is the thing that makes having relentless joy in any circumstance possible. The conventional wisdom of the world says you can either have joy or you can have suffering. Not both. One or the other. You can have joy or suffering. You can have rejoicing or you can have deep struggle, but not both. Certainly not both at the same time in the same body and the same mind. You can't have both, right? But what we see in Philippians again and again and again is, is that God's new creation works differently. Joy is learning to recognize grace all around you. The grace of God all around you. Joy is learning that God is up to something even in this. Right? And I'm talking to you. And you and you. Right? Even in that, the thing that you're going through, that nobody else understands, God is up to something even in this. Amen? Amen. Amen. Joy. Joy is like that flower that grows up in the pavement in the little crack, in the dirty, ugly pavement. In fact, it's that shock of color that makes you notice it, surrounded by all that drabness, right? It makes it so strikingly beautiful. You wouldn't have noticed it otherwise, but you notice it. It sticks out. That's joy in the midst of heartache, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering. Grace makes beautiful things out of the dust. Grace allows the garden of joy to spring up even in the rubble of your pain. Grace allows a garden in that situation. Grace is the revolution taking place right under the nose of Caesar that he can try to stop. 
but he's not going to be able to. It's the, it's the revolution taking place right under the nose of Herod. He tried to stop it. He could try to murder it. He could try to, to murder it in the Colosseum or murder it in Bethlehem. It's not going to work, right? Because grace gives birth to saints right under Caesar's nose, right in his very household. It gives birth to a savior in a backwater village in a corner of the empire. That's grace. And grace will sustain the saints that are in Caesar's household even in the coming days, and they're going to get awkward for them. Can we imagine what that is going to be like? Think about that. Paul, here's Paul. He's in Caesar's prison because he didn't buy into that whole Caesar is Lord propaganda, right? But while he's in prison, he's been telling Caesar's employees about the resurrected Christ, and some of them are now believing in that Christ, and that Christ is Lord, not Caesar, and they've become followers. Now, if you work for Caesar and you receive your paycheck from, you know, Caesar Incorporated's on the bottom of your paycheck there, and you belong to Caesar's household, how do you explain to Caesar, your boss, that you've now become a follower of Jesus, who is the Lord because of the witness of this man, Paul, who is about to be executed by Caesar because he keeps insisting that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar? Uh, Has your job ever put you in morally ambiguous situations? Yeah. Places where you're not quite sure what the right thing to do is. You're not alone. You're not the first. I think Paul adds this little comment, especially those who belong to the household of Caesar. He adds this little detail, I think, at the end, just to let us know that the Jesus movement is taking off inside the halls of power. It's taken off there. Paul wants us to know that even if he dies, the movement goes on. The movement lives on. He wants his Philippian friends to know that there are others out there in this very tenuous, also living in very tenuous, risky, dangerous situations who are also trying to figure out what does this mean now to follow Jesus? Right? Those awkward situations. Remember his prayer for them early in the letter, way back in chapter 1, verse 9. He said... I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. Because there's going to be a whole lot of awkward situations ahead. Once you come into the kingdom of God and your paycheck comes from Caesar, you need to know how to discern what is best. Only the Holy Spirit can help us navigate those waters, right? You can become the kind of person who is abounding more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. So we explored this idea before of of knowing something, but then really knowing it. Really knowing it. Not just in the head with facts and figures and words and information, but in that phronesis sense of knowing, learning to think and act and feel like Christ in that Christ pattern especially as we live and we move and we have our being in a world that often seems to be going the other way. We need to depend on him, right? You can do it. You can do it, even in this crazy modern world of ours. You can learn and you can grow and discern. You can ask for wisdom and insight and he'll give it to you. You can ask for what to do in those, those I, need, I need knowledge of how to navigate those fuzzy, awkward, difficult situations that we find ourselves in every day. You can ask God to show you what the next right thing to do and you will receive, which will be, of course, completely due to grace. Pure grace. He'll give, he'll give you the answer. And so, 
all my best friends. Here we are. We come to the end of the letter of Philippians. What a journey it's been. What a book. Amen? Amen. This week, I want to encourage you as, you, as you go forth, as you celebrate the birth of Christ with your loved ones, I invite you to step into the relentless joy of Philippians. Say yes to joy and grace and peace. Even in the midst of the flurry and the chaos of activity and the noise, and, and yes, even in the midst of the painful memories that Christmas brings some of us. For some of us, Christmas has always been a source of, of, of pain. Even in the midst of that, if that is you, I want to especially encourage you, if that is you, Christmas is especially for you. Because Christmas is about the joy that appears in the midst of suffering. That's exactly what Christmas is about. It's about a pure, righteous, sinless God taking on flesh that feels pain. Christmas is about a baby, a brand new baby, lying in an old animal trough. It's the Savior of the world born into the middle of occupied territory. That's the message of Christmas. The message of the Philippians is the message of Christmas, that hope has arrived. That's the message of Philippians. It may look like Caesar is still on the throne, but in reality, it is God who is in control and God who is taking back his creation. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It means everything. Grace and peace means you're going to be okay. It means there's a revolution that's brewing right under Caesar's nose. There's a revolution happening in the manger in a little village nobody would suspect. That's grace. Grace and peace. It means, it means whatever it is that they said on the news this week or whatever the doctor told you in that little room off to the side. It means whatever memo was handed down by corporate headquarters that's got everybody freaked out. It means whatever your checkbook says right now Grace and peace means you're going to be okay. It can't touch your joy because it can't touch your soul. Because you're infinitely loved by the God who is up to something, even in this. Even in this. Grace and peace. How we long for it desperately. How we need to see it every day, how we need to hear it from each other every day. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you, my friends. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the Savior that you sent that changed everything, Father God. We thank you that you create beauty from ashes, Father God, that you are the source of our, of our grace. You're the source of our peace. You're the source of our joy. You're the source of everything that we have, everything that we need comes from you, Father God. We know that you're the source of every good thing that happens to us, Father God. 
We ask you, Lord, in this season, in this Christmas week that we are embarking on, Father God, help us to be hyper aware of miracles happening all around us. Help us to be aware of grace happening all around us so we can be filled with your joy, Father God. No matter what's going on, Father God, help us to be aware of your grace and mercy that is new every single morning. I praise you for it, Lord God. I thank you for all the ways that you've called us to come together in Koinonia, Father God. Come together in fellowship and partnership, Lord God. That that perfect form of relationship, Lord God. So that we can not only partner with you, Lord God, that we're partnering with each other. And as we go into 2016, you've got some amazing things planned for us in 2016. And I can't wait to see them, Lord God. Help us to have that sense of, of true Koinonia, real partnership, where we can look outside these doors to the people that you love so much and take them your gospel, Father, and find our joy and find our peace as we walk in what you have for us to do, Father. I thank you, Lord. I pray for every person in this room today, Lord God, every need that they have, Lord, that you know every single one of them and you care about those needs and that you are there to meet the needs, Father God, and to give us purpose in our life. And you are, you are growing us up in you, Father God, that we're maturing, we're growing in our relationship with you, Father God, that we're getting to know you better so we can trust you more, Father. I thank you in 2016, we grow and grow to know you better so we can trust you more. Praise you, Lord, for that. I thank you for every person, all these precious people that make up Generations Church, Lord God, together as partners, Lord God. I thank you for what you're doing through us, what you're allowing us to do for you, Lord God, what you're doing through our hands and our feet and our mouths. We thank you for that. I thank you for the the giving of the people this year, Father God. They've been so generous, the giving, the presence that they're giving to the children, Lord God. We thank you for that, Lord God. We pray that all, every family in this community comes to know you. We pray for Jesus in every heart, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, for that. And I thank you for the times that you you do bring us together so that we can charge each other's batteries, Father God. Just like our prime timer is going to be meeting after church, Lord God, I thank you for I thank you for every generation in this church, Father. I thank you for the children, Lord God, that you're raising up through this church, Lord. I thank you for the teachers that are teaching those children, Father. That's such a such an amazing thing that they're doing, Lord God. There's no higher calling. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you, Father God, for our teenagers, Lord, that you're moving in our in our midst among the youth of, of, of our community, Lord, and the youth of this church, Father. I thank you for the leaders that you're bringing up in those teens, Father. I thank you for our young adults, Lord God, our middle-agers, everybody from, from zero to 100. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Everything is gift. Everything we have is a gift from you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.